is an Odyssey original. This is KX in depth. I'm Rob Archer. I remember you. I am trying to remember how to do the show. Oh, you'll remember. Okay, okay. it'll come back to me. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. Can you ride a bike? No. Oh. I'm Charles Feldman. Pandemic back rent due tomorrow. We'll go in depth into LA's plans to keep thousands and thousands of renters in their homes. We look back at the career of actor-comedian Paul Rubens, also known as Pee Wee Herman. He died today at the age of 70. And what do you think of angels? I'm not talking about the baseball team, actual angels with the halos and the wings. We'll get into why angels are so popular. Hmm. We start, though, with back rent from early in the pandemic that's due starting tomorrow. Conway Collis is CEO of the Mayor's Fund for Los Angeles. It's a philanthropic organization that is now helping people avoid eviction. Conway, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, and I'm glad you're covering this. Well, thank you. Uh, So tell us how your group is going to help some of these folks whose rent is going to be due and may not be able to pay it. Well, we're already seeing a a spike in evictions, and um, it's very serious. And and clearly, the city is responding, and and the Mayor's Fund, through our We Are Are LA program, is bringing together the private and philanthropic resources to build on uh, what what the Mayor's Office and the city uh, is doing. And um, so we brought together uh, nine community groups, uh, the largest Community Health Center in Los Angeles, uh, tenant advocates, legal service attorneys, private pro bono attorneys to form We Are LA. And we currently have um, 150 uh, community outreach workers reaching out to at-risk Angelinos uh, to let them know that um, that there is help available and uh, and how to how to add how to reach it. And uh, we also have um, 50 tenant advocates who are, when someone does need help, are there to um, connect people directly to the resources they may be eligible for and to legal services. And it's just critical uh, to ramp up what we're doing and what the city is doing uh, as much as possible. Um, I'll just give an example. We, we've already, over the last six weeks as we begin to ramp up and and prepare for increases, uh, we've reached out and actually spoken with uh, 40,000 at-risk Angelinos. And what we found is that um, over 11,000 of them uh, need services of one time to become stable and to be able to keep paying their rent. And 1,200 of those people face immediate eviction or they've already received a a notice of eviction. So um, the outreach workers and the caseworkers have been uh, directly connecting people to the services they're eligible for and uh, to legal help. Um, One more thing, one of the things the caseworkers are doing is is actually someone's received uh, a notice of eviction. They're actually helping them online provide a legal answer to the court. So they've answered um, the allegation that um, uh, that they need to be evicted. And that exp- extends the time, uh, which is really important because um, that provides time to work something out with the landlord uh, for the back payment of rent and the payment of future rent. 
I want to dig into something that you uh, mentioned uh, a minute ago. We talked about some people just needing some one-time help to get back on track. And if that's the case, that that's a good thing, because I think there is some concern in some quarters that, yes, we know that people need help, but when does that help stop? We can't keep helping them forever. Well, that's one of the reasons that connecting people to the all of the services, federal, state, local, uh, that they may be eligible for is so critical. And this isn't new public money. This is the, whether they're uh, uh, currently eligible for health care, for uh, food support, for the earned income tax credit, because they've been working but just not making enough. What we found is that people are leaving as much as $10,000 on the table um, of money that's already available to them. And they haven't, uh, they didn't know they were uh, eligible for it. They didn't know how to apply. They couldn't fight through a bureaucracy, which is certainly a problem we've we've all faced. Um, and so by making that money available to them, it puts them in a position where they're able to uh, continue to, to pay their rent. Beyond that, uh, there is um, uh, some uh, emergency money available through the uh, can be reached either through our caseworkers or through the uh, city's uh, housing department. Um, and um, uh, so, so it's important that uh, people try to obtain that. It's not enough to serve the need, but it is enough to help some people. And also the, the family source centers, and there are 50, 15 of them that, that uh, the city is running, um, are also if people walk into a family source center, they also mm-hmm. each of those centers um, have some money that they can distribute for immediate um, eviction avoidance. Conway, one quick uh, last question here. Is there any projection on how many people, despite all of these efforts, might end up being homeless? Yeah, unfortunately, there is. Um, and we've, we've got those numbers uh, from the courts. Um, who are, by the way, trying to be proactive and do right. everything they, they what, can. What, what are we talking about then? So there were 27,000 evictions last year in the city of Los Angeles. And the projections are that there will be at least an increase of 9,000 beyond that uh, for this coming year. Um, so it's, it's, it's something where we have to do everything we can. And just by the way, um, the landlords um, are often mom and pops. They've got bills and a mortgage to pay, and they don't want to evict people. And so part of what we're doing is to try to um, – we're all in this together. We want to keep people housed, and we also want to do um, what's necessary to, to try to assist landlords in, in paying their bills. Mm. Conway uh, Collis, thank you so much. CEO of the Mayor's Fund for Los Angeles. Right now, though, Hollywood and the comedy world mourning the death of Paul Rubens, best known for his alter ego, Pee Wee Herman. He died at the age of 70 following a battle with cancer. With us now is Jackie Jordan, pop culture and entertainment expert. Jackie, thanks for being with us. I was so happy to be here. How about that? A legend, a legend we all remember who definitely carved out a very unique niche for himself in entertainment. And, and how would you describe that unique niche? Well, you know, he, I mean, he, he became, you know, famous. He created his character um, in LA and Los Angeles at the Groundlings. So, um, and, you know, really rose to uh, that kind of that childhood teen fame in um, the eighties, you know, 
Um, and, he, and he was really, really respected and liked, especially, I believe, around the comedy, um, you know, the comedy troops and co comedians of Los Angeles. Um, and then he, you know, kind of became a megastar in his children comedy, um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's so ironic because I, uh, my, my, my girlfriend friend owns um, a Mellow Mushroom pizza, pizzeria. In the place of um, the theater in Sarasota, Florida, that um, he was first arrested at, which was really became a scandal um, at the time. Yes. And uh, then remember, he was arrested again um, and uh, for having um, illicit material, pornography material, um, which was considered child porn. And he, he fought it and the charges were dropped. And that definitely never want to speak ill about the dead, but tainted his reputation, especially as a, ch um, a children's entertainer. Yeah, we want to dig into that, but I, I wanted to ask you, because I've always been curious, because, you know, these these uh, uh, improv comedy people, which is which is a talent that's very hard to find, hard to come by, but it created this character, I believe, from the improv work he did to the Groundlings. But what other characters did he do that could have been something other than who we all came to know as Pee Wee Herman. Did he have any other signature characters that just didn't get off the ground? Well, you know, I, you know, he was, he was, you know, after his comeback, he did a whole lot of other movies. He, you know, he was in, um, he was in the movie Blow, Batman Returns, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, Matilda, 30, you know, he did guest appearances on television shows, 30 Rock, The Black. I mean, he, he, he stayed active. I mean, he, He's, you know, he reminds, you know, it's um, like a Hugh Grant, you know, you're a big actor, then you have a scandal and then you make a comeback. I mean, there's a whole handful of Hollywood, um, Hollywoodites um, that have done that. And Pee Wee Herman certainly did it. In terms of your specific question, I just mostly know him for uh, uh, Pee Wee, um, Pee Wee's Playhouse. Did he also did, I think, Captain Kangaroo, too. Didn't he do something like that? Captain Kangaroo was a come as uh, one of his his childhood. You know, I don't know, but uh, it, but it, it sounds like something yeah. he might have done. Yeah, it would have been in his wheelhouse. But but Jackie, let me let me ask you since uh, we've gotten onto the subject about his uh, earlier problems uh, with the law that did derail his career for quite some time, and then a comeback. How did he manage to do that comeback? And I and I asked that question in light of the fact that only last week. We were asking the question of Kevin Spacey, right, who uh, has now been uh, acquitted in a criminal trial in London and he was found uh, not complicit in a civil trial in New York. And we asked a bunch of experts, uh, could he make a comeback? And they were doubtful that he could. So how did Paul Rubens manage it? You know, and I want to stand corrected because uh, uh, Los Angeles didn't drop the charges. He actually pled guilty to a, a lesser uh, misdemeanor okay. obscenity charge on that. And I think that's why, it, you know, and he self he had declared publicly that he was not a pedophile, um, which is kind of what kind of hung around him for a long time. Hollywood sometimes is way more um, forgiving of our stars like Woody Allen um, than I think the public is or the consumer is. Um, and I think that was probably the case with um, Paul Rubin. I think he was so liked within the um, community that they, you know, took continue to take on projects of his and continue to um, 
you know, keep him out there. You know, it's very much like Woody Allen, but I don't know if the audience ever forgets. And I think that is certainly what he had, but, you know, look at Johnny Depp. He's on his way of, on a comeback. So, you know, celebrities do make their comeback. And I would disagree with the folks that said that Kevin Spacey is not going to make a comeback. Oh, we're going to see Kevin Spacey again. And he's going to wrap this whole, um, thing this whole uh lawsuit um or, or charges against him probably right into the next script that he plays because in a weird way he's kind of already played that 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 dark character hmm. that dark hollywood character type if you think about kevin spacey's um movie career um character so you know you know there is a little bit of an irony in that but um you know the tributes you know i i know um actress eg daly you know personally and you know she never had a bad thing to say with about him having been on um and and they maintained a, a really strong right. uh you know friendship uh, after she was on a peewee's um, big playhouse so like i said i think hollywood really felt favorable about him i think everybody else will always remember the um the theater story first. All right. Uh, Paul Rubens, uh, the man who was P.B. Herman, dead at 70. And Jackie Jordan, thanks for joining us. Pop culture and entertainment expert. Look up. Well, not if you're driving. If you're stopped at a light. You know, look up. Okay. Look to your left. Uh, look to your right. Look over your shoulder. Are heavenly beings with wings and halos watching over us? If you don't think so, guess what? You're in the minority. Oh. We'll explain a bit later. I think I know where I fall. Oh. Uh, right now, though, two indictments and two more potentially coming soon have not hurt President Trump's chances in the Republican primary. A New York Times Siena College poll shows him way ahead of the rest of the field. Of course, it's a big field. Uh, Matt Terrell is a Republican strategist for Firehouse Strategies and the former chief of staff of a uh, person who tried to uh, beat Donald Trump for the nomination back in 2016 didn't, did not succeed. Marco Rubio, thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So does it have to do with the fact that the base is so monolithic for Donald Trump that anybody else in the Republican field, especially when you have as many different candidates as you have now in that field, no one just has a clear path to wrangling any of those people? Well, certainly we have a ways to go in this race, but to answer your question, look, as things stand right now in this race, you know, look, what we're seeing is what we've seen for, for years now, and that is that former President Trump is dominating the Republican field. He's been having a dominant role in the Republican Party really since uh, he's been sworn in as president. And so what we're seeing right now, to your point, multiple candidates running in this race, uh, it's still early yet, though, to decide ultimately how this will, will all get uh, shaken out. But clearly, there's there's one main lane uh, and pathway to get the nomination, and that goes directly right through former President Trump. I suspect all the candidates in this race know that, and certainly the voters do, do as well. Can Trump win the nomination with his base alone? And if so, then the key question is, could he go on and win the presidency again with that population group only? Well, for the nomination, he certainly can win the Republican nomination with his base of support, because look, if you believe... In the recent polling, obviously, we saw polling by the New York Times and others come out and show that former President Trump's uh, standing among Republican voters, those voters who will decide this Republican nomination for president, particularly in key states like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, those key states coming up, they'll be instrumental uh, in deciding who the Republican nominee for president will be. You know, a lot of those voters right now appear to be uh, siding with former President Trump. Uh, so in terms of the former president winning the Republican nomination certainly can do that with those base of supporters who in many cases are standing in large 
lockstep with the former president. But to answer your question about the general election, look, you know, elections, particularly in general elections, are about addition, multiplication, uh, you know, not division, subtraction. And so to that end, you know, the former president needs to maintain his base, but he also needs to go beyond that, to your point. And that is going and reaching some of those independent voters, reaching some Democrats. He's got to be able to broaden beyond his ceiling. That's ultimately be the question for him in the general election. He's got that base of support that really is passionate about his candidacy. Can he reach over to independents, even some Democrats, and get them into his fold? That's how he's going to have to win the general election if he expects to win it again. Now, I, I know, and I know that you do too, there is some concern among some of the Republican Party movers and shakers that uh, they know that Donald Trump will most likely win the nomination, uh, you know, unless there's a major change between now and then. But they are concerned that he is not going to be able to win in a general election against uh, President Biden. Uh, it, given that concern, some of these powerful movers and shakers in the Republican Party, and not just in the party, but also the major donor base uh, to the GOP, uh, they've got concerns as well. Why have they not gotten in the way of so many others jumping into the nominating race, which dilutes the field, which only helps uh, Donald Trump get that nomination? Sure. Well, look, you know, at the end of the day, this nomination is going to be decided among a select few group of people. It's going to be those Republican voters, those grassroots voters in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. I don't mean to be redundant, but those are kind of the key states coming up here. They're going to play such a critical role in deciding this nomination. And while many donors in the party and many of the quote unquote party insiders may have a different view on this, you know, for example, those Republicans in Washington, it's no disrespect to Republicans in Washington, uh, but they're not going to decide this nomination. Ultimately, in those core states, those early primary and caucus states, that's what's going to decide this thing. And so to answer your question, look, it's going to be those grassroots voters. It's going to be, you know, those caucus goers, you know, the delegates. They're the ones who are going to have the ability to decide who the nominee is. And right now, as we've seen with the polling, you know, by a broad range right now, you know, from, you know, men and women, young and old, uh, you know, moderate and conservative, regardless across the board, those party grassroots voters, they're largely still in lockstep with the former president. Again, we have a ways to go here, but bottom line is those primary and caucus go goer base voters, a lot of them are in lockstep with this former president and they'll decide this nomination. All right, Ben Terrell, Republican strategist, thanks for joining us. You're listening to KNX in depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Illegal child labor is apparently on the rise across the country. Child labor violations have increased the past few years. The Department of Labor has even started a task force to crack down on these violations. David Weil is a professor of the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. He's also a former administrator in the Department of Labor. Thanks for being with us, David. Thanks for having me. How big of a problem is this now, child labor? Uh, it's a very significant problem. We're seeing the, the Labor Department says there are 44% more child labor violations this year than in the past. But even more disturbing is where we're seeing child labor occurring in, in industries that it's been illegal since 1938. Uh, what kind of industries are those? Uh, those are like um, the, the worst ones are meat processing, uh, children on kill floors doing cleaning in the middle of the night. But they've also been found in auto suppliers of major companies like Hyundai and in processed food packing facilities that are uh, brands that that Quaker Oats and, and Frito-Lay. Um, these are all areas we've seen 
uh, hundreds of kids in in the last year found, and as well as in fast fast food franchises and other places that have always been traditional issues. But it's these manufacturing sites where it's very disturbing to see these violations. What age range, by the way, are we talking about? And and uh, in addition to that, my question is, why are we seeing this now? Is there a genuine uptick or is it that we are looking and finding more of what's there? That That's a great question. Um, the, the children are as young as 14. And in, in fact, in one of the, the franchises of a McDonald's in Kentucky, uh, there was a 10-year-old found working. But in the meat processing and the factory settings, we're talking 14 15-year-old children, which is which is really outrageous. Um, I think there are a few factors that are coming together um, that, that are causing this. One is we we um, have companies who were affected by the pandemic who are trying to quickly ramp up production, um, and they're facing labor supply shortages. Um, they're using a lot of contractors and subcontractors to find their workforce, and they're kind of blaming them for the fact that those folks have been finding a labor supply in these these children. Um, and so those are both factors. The third factor is, unfortunately, we have a lot of unaccompanied children who are in this country right now um, here because they're seeking asylum, um, but we don't adequately support them. And so they're very vulnerable to the kind of exploitation that uh, we've been talking about. So we've already got, you know, laws against uh, a lot of this because we're calling these violations. That means there is a law that's being violated. But uh, as I recall, there were some lawmakers in several states who wanted to loosen child labor laws in response to the worker shortage that we had. If you remember, talk about that as we began to recover from the pandemic. There were people that couldn't hire enough workers. So uh, some uh, state lawmakers wanted to loosen those restrictions, let kids as young as 14 work in bars and uh, other places of employment, uh, restaurants and what have you. Is that also a problem? And and is any pushback being done against that? Yeah, um you know, we do have the Fair Labor Standards Act, our federal law that prescribed that doesn't allow child labor. It goes back to 1938. These are always violations. Those laws still um, are in place. We don't have enough people, investigators in the federal government to enforce all of those child labor provisions, but those remain in place. Uh, it is a really weird response. We're seeing in a bunch of states that are trying to relax. Um, their prohibitions for for state labor law violations um, in, in many states they've they've already passed, um, and it you know it's not like there are no other options other than having fourteen year olds working in meatpacking plants. You know there are other ways we can find more laborers, and a lot of companies are successfully doing that. Um, so I think it's more of a political response than anything. These the, the states that are trying to relax their laws in, in, in response to the labor shortages. I, I am curious, are these for the most part children, uh, children being paid? And if they're being paid, how are they being paid on the books when I would think that would instantly give away their age? Or are they being you know given sort of uh, crumbs in, in terms of money and being paid off the books? No, that's a great question. Also, they are being paid. Um, the The excuse that many of these major companies, and these are major brands that ultimately are responsible for it, like Frito-Lay, like Hyundai, um, like JBS Meats, 
Um, their their claim is, well, we outsourced this particular function to a third party, and those third parties were using staffing agencies, and those staffing agencies were using falsified documents. Um, it's a little hard to believe for a couple reasons. One is they're still responsible. At the end of the day, our law makes clear that you can't just kind of try to slip out of it that way. But the other thing that I think, again, is disturbing about these cases is fellow workers were noticing that these children were, you know, that these people were obviously way underage to be doing the kinds of work that they are. Um, so they're being paid, um, but they're doing things that, again, our law has said uh, are prohibited for people any any age under 18 mm. um, for, for more than 100 years. So it, it's... Um, uh, it, it's it's sort of an an odd excuse to be for these companies to be making at this point. All right. Thank you so much, David Weil, a former administrator in the Department of Labor. Are angels real? It depends on whom you ask, but it seems most people will tell you yes. There's a new Associated Press poll that finds a significant majority, 7 in 10 adults in the U.S., believe that angels are real. With us now, Jack Roger, who knows real-life angels in the form of baseball players. Huh? See, that's where we came in. He's the chaplain for the L.A. Angels, also the nearby Anaheim Ducks. He's a San Diego County fire captain, lead pastor of Sanctified Church in Orange. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us. I appreciate it. So, uh, well, I don't think this poll dug into the religious beliefs of people who believe in angels, but this would seem to be more of a religious thing. Uh, what do you know of people who are not religious but also believe in some kind of angelic beings that are looking out for what we do? I think that's a really good question, and I think the article is kind of a representation of people looking for something better than themselves, right? I think a tendency is for people that believe in something supernatural and, and what that is uh, for, for some might be different for others. But as a pastor of a church, the Bible does speak quite a bit about angels. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the article was, was even handed on both sides of it. Holly did a good job. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's one of the main for us is people are just looking for something greater than themselves. What I also found interesting uh, is that, uh, you know, more people believed in angels than they did in the opposite, right? Uh, how could that be? How could one believe in one but not the other? Aren't they sort of kind of a unit in a way? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. But I think with the concept of angels, people can make them to be whatever they want them to be. Whereas if you talk specifically about God or Jesus, that's very narrow, and you can't redefine Jesus and God. But when it comes to angels, let's say people that aren't practicing believers, they might attribute themselves identifying with an angel because they can kind of maybe define that angel and its purpose, and people might be willing to submit to that type of authority but not to the authority of scriptures as it points to Jesus or God himself. Uh, I, I'm, I hope that my question won't offend you, but I'm going to ask no. it anyway, and, and hopefully it won't. Uh, isn't there something to a belief in angels in that it's kind of a lazy person's way out? In other words, what I mean by that is not that they're lazy, but that all the problems we have in the world today, well, we've got angels to take care of us, so relax, don't worry about it. 
uh, as as uh, compared to people who believe that, well, there are no angels, and if we're going to solve our problems, we have to do it ourselves, and we're going to have to find a way to work together because no one is coming to save us. Uh, is is believing in angels kind of a kind of a way to take the onus off of yourself to get things done? I, th- I think, you know, well, that's a huge theological question, and I think that, uh, you know, whether someone believes in heaven or hell or not, or is someone going to come save us and working together, there's a lot of questions to be answered in that. And so I, I think at the end of the day, you know, from, from my position of where I stand um, on a biblical foundation is that, you know, the Bible does talk about inner angels and his interactions with us as people and how God created them and, and they're, they're interacting with humanity but you can't, I can't, I don't teach that angels in and of themselves are our way to salvation. You know, the Bible's clear about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That's our only way through salvation. But there is an angelic perspective out there that is working within humanity. We see that in scriptures as well, where angels interacted with humanity. Some people might call that a guardian angel. And so, you know, this is where we have to be very clear on the purpose of angels. But all of this being said, I, you know, I've said it multiple times, it, it all points to Jesus himself. And that's the bigger issue here. You know, angels are great. They have perspectives. They have purposes. But at the end of the day, I'm looking beyond the angel to save us. Although, obviously, there are people who are not Christian who also believe in angels. So it becomes a really interesting Question. Let me and talking about questions. Let me ask you uh, a personal one because uh, I don't like to presume anything, so I won't. Uh, do you believe personally in angels? And if you do, how do you define it for yourself? Yeah. So I do personally believe in angels, and the reason is is because angels is spread throughout the Bible, and so the, the Bible does talk about angels. So therefore, I believe in angels. How I. Uh, reconcile that to myself is, is that um, there's angels that have uh, certain responsibilities. We see this where there's angels in heaven worshiping God constantly. Uh, There's order of angels. There's the archangel. I'm sure people have heard of archangel, Michael, the archangel. There's angels that are titled as cherubim and seraphim, and they all have different levels of responsibilities, and they're interacting with humanity. The question about if somebody's let's say not a believer but they believe in angels goes back to i think that humanity in and of themselves are always looking for something greater than themselves so let's just assume i don't believe in god at all i don't believe in heaven and i don't believe in a hell but at the end of the day i have to come to some point where i have to question my future well you know beyond death um, where did we come from, the heavens, the earth. I have to reconcile all that stuff. And, and somebody might say, well, there's something greater out there than me. There must be. And therefore, I, whatever it is, I'm going to believe in that. And I'm going to tie myself to that. And, and that can take on the form of angels. And so, you know, we can see how much easier it is maybe to believe in angels than necessarily believe in God. Well, of course, uh, Jack Roger, our guest, believes in angels because he's the chaplain of the angels. The L.A. (laughs) Angels, uh, but also uh, San Diego County Fire Captain, lead pastor of Sanctified Church in Orange. Thanks for uh, joining us. Interesting discussion. Yeah. So uh, do you believe in angels, Charles? Do I believe in angels? No. Yeah. So you and I are on the minority side. We don't believe in angels. No. Uh, Do you believe in demons? 
Uh, no. Yeah. No. I, I do. I do know the IRS exists. Yeah, I occasionally, I, say, I occasionally hear from them. There, so. are, there are people who could play the role of demons. I <laughs> yes. think from time to time. That's going to do it for KNX in depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at one p.m.